Thanks for pressing play. There's a serendipitous magic that can only happen in a real conversation. When people put down their devices and talking points, open their minds, and engage with genuine curiosity. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the authentic dialogue podcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. I'm producer Jason DeFilippo, and today we have a very special episode for you. There are experiences in life over which you never get, and this dialogue is one of those. Normally during the intro, we tell you some things you'll learn and some things to listen for, but not today, because we want you to get what there is for you to get from this conversation. What we do want you to know is who Pastor Ivan Maware is. He's the Zimbabwean clergyman who founded the hashtag This Flag Citizens Movement to challenge corruption, injustice, and poverty in Zimbabwe. He's the man who stood up to an evil dictator, Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe. With nothing more than his voice, faith, and commitment to his country and his people, Pastor Ivan mobilized a movement powered by social media called Hashtag This Flag. He empowered the nation of Zimbabwe to peaceful protest. And when he inspired his beloved country, Pastor Ivan inspired the world. But he has paid an unimaginable personal price. On this episode, you get to hear his story in his words like never before. Today, Pastor Ivan is a keynote speaker and evangelist for democracy who addresses audiences around the world. He's been a fellow at Yale, Stanford, UPenn, Johns Hopkins University, and the National Endowment for Democracy. He's also the Director of Education at the Renew Democracy Initiative. Foreign Policy Magazine named him one of the top 100 global thinkers. The Daily Maverick newspaper of South Africa named him 2016 African Person of the Year. This is a legendary dialogue with a legendary man that will inspire you in legendary ways. Now, hey-ho, let's go. So maybe let me ask you this. I have a million questions. And I, and I really want to hear your story from you. I've spent um, the last few weeks, ever since Pastor Dave introduced us, uh, trying to consume everything about your life and your background that I can. And it just, the more I uh, unpack what you've been through and what you've achieved, the more inspired I am by it. Um, but how do you keep that positive attitude? How do you feel this way about other humans when you yourself have been mistreated, maybe putting it nicely, and, uh, and arrested and uh, trodden upon, how is it you just have this big smile on your face and you're this positive person who wants to treat everybody well? Why aren't you bitter? I think let me start off by answering this, that last bit of your question first. Why aren't you bitter uh, or angry or you know, whatever the, the, the word may be? You know, I would be lying if I said I was never bitter or never angry at some point in my life or in my journey, particularly this part of the journey. But you have to have an openness of heart to work that bitterness out. You have to have it in your heart to be able to get to a point where you release the anger that you feel towards somebody because these are human emotions and 
and and they're a part of who we are as humans that sometimes we feel bitter sometimes we feel angry the problem is not that we feel them the problem is that we hold on to them right you've got to release them because at the end of the day what bitterness does is that it does not affect what you are bitter towards but it poisons your own well right it poisons you the problem with unforgiveness is that though you may not release the other person from what they did to you more than anything else you hold yourself prisoner and that for me is the that it it makes it makes me it makes my whole body even kind of clam up just thinking about the fact that when I don't forgive you Chris even if you've wronged me genuinely you have wronged me and I don't forgive you from my heart effectively what I do is I keep I'm I'm the one in a prison because every time I think about Chris I get angry every time I think about Chris I I'm I I, I can't work and and my emotions are all over the place so I've got to learn to release I've got to learn to forgive because my journey in releasing other people and forgiving other people is also the journey that I'm walking in forgiving myself and in releasing myself and in a sense wanting other people who I shall wrong and the ones I have wronged because as pure as we may think our you know intentions and actions have been they have hurt people somewhere along the path and it's only when i release people from the bitterness and the anger that i've had that i didn't find it in my heart to go back sometimes and find the people are wronged and and have the decency to humble myself and say to them chris there's a time i said some things to you or there's a time i held a belief about you or there's a time that i did this to you i'm so sorry for that forgive me and sometimes at the highest level you go and confess things to people that those people didn't even know you did and whilst it was easier to walk away because no one knew and no one's the wiser it 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 was killing you and it was killing your ability to flourish and to be the best human you can be so you found it more profitable to go back and humble yourself at the risk of being condemned because that is what it takes you will be condemned possibly you might even be shunned possibly people may not even take the apology possibly they may even start a hate campaign against you positively but you walk away with the with the clarity of conscience and the purity of spirit that i was open and i let them go and i released them and i asked for their forgiveness and that truly is 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 really really what 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 has kept me on this path as i go and it's a learning process chris I'm growing in it every single day. Uh I I now, you know, I I thought it was only with adults. But do it with a 6-year-old. Go back to your 6-year-old daughter and say, "Sweetheart, daddy was really angry and that was wrong. I should not have said that. Would you forgive me?" And that's a journey that I'm I'm learning to walk every single day. Thank you, Pastor. Now I'm curious how do you access that place in the face of radical injustice? I mean, you have faced radical, horrible injustice. You've been unjustly uh, held in prison. Right. And you'll tell me, I hope, but I would imagine your safety and your well-being and maybe even your life 
you may have felt was at risk at certain points. You took tremendous, tremendous risk against an entrenched system that was purpose-built to destroy anybody like you. And so uh, you face radical injustice. Uh, and so how can you forgive the, the purveyors of that kind of radical injustice to you and to so many others? You know, Chris, the, that sense of forgiving, I think, it comes from the sense of trying to figure out in our own hearts how much compensation is going to be enough for what has been done to us. And I understand the need for, for justice to be served. In fact, it's important for people to understand that forgiveness is not a replacement for justice, right? I can forgive you, but justice must be served. And I think those two, those two things uh, need to be understood separately. And, and I think that's how I have arrived at these points where I could forgive Robert Mugabe, the dictator, the Zimbabwean dictator who threatened me personally. He uttered my name in countless speeches and threatened me, who threatened my family and, you know, gave the orders for me to be arrested and to be abused and to be tortured and to be locked up in a maximum security prison. And I can still forgive that man. And yet, at that very same point, the demand for justice to be served, not just for my life, because what was done for, to me, it pales in the knowledge of what was done to millions of people whom you are not able to talk to or able to even see, or you shall yes. ever see because they lost their lives. Yes. Right? Hor horrible. This was a horrible man who did these things. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. And so even, so even when I sometimes speak in these terms of, I got to a place where I forgave him. I can only encourage other people to forgive him. Justice must be served, you know, but I, I can only encourage other people to forgive him, but they can only do that in their own time and in their own pace and as their heart is healed because if it doesn't come from your own heart and if it's not what you really want, yes. then it's not real and it's not, it's, not, it's not going to be effective. So I think I'll just say that again, that the understanding that there's a difference between forgiveness and justice. We, I will forgive you, and I do forgive you. However, justice must take its course. So you can forgive and demand justice at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, Pastor Evan, pretend I haven't done any reading at all, and maybe you and I just happen to meet over a nice tasty beer uh -huh. uh, or, or anything else tasty you like to consume when you're meeting people that you <laughs> want to meet. And I had no idea and I said, oh, hello, Pastor Evan. Tell me your story. Could you tell me your story? You know, I think the, the most obvious story that, that um, I would probably tell is the one uh, of the last maybe six or seven years of direct confrontation with the dictatorship, unexpectedly so. But before I tell that, and I said, the reason I say the most obvious story to tell is that one, is that Ivan Mawarire existed before the story. And it is the existence of that young man that gave birth 
to these prominent five years that the world knows about. And I've been guilty of ignoring this young man over the years who, who grew up and, and, and who eventually inspired this story. So if you'll allow me to, to redeem this young man for, for a minute, and then I'll, 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 I'll come into the I, I want to hear all his. about the young man, and I want to hear about the current man and every man in between. <laughs> <laughs> because we are, and I love the way you've just put that, because we are, we are a series of different people in our, in our lifetime. It's the same life, but we are different people. If we took, I turned 46 this year, if you introduced 23-year-old Ivan Mawadide to 46-year-old Ivan Mawadide, we might not recognize each other. In fact, we might be fascinated with each other. We might sit together for hours learning about each other because we, we, we become way different people at different stages of our lives. And this is part of what I've learned to embrace. You know, I grew up in a home where my dad, beautiful leadership, you know, principles, my dad uh, was the kind of person who pulled himself up by the bootstraps. In fact, you know, he didn't have any boots to pull himself up by, you know. Did he pull himself um, up by his own toes or something? Literally <laughs> by his own toes, you know. Grew up in rural Zimbabwe. He was a, um, a cow herder. Uh, as a young man, that's what he did. And uh, when the liberation struggle, you know, was heated up in Zimbabwe, he was one of those that was involved in the very ground forces, the most elementary aspects of the war. These are the runners in between and so forth. And when the war for liberation for Zimbabwe came to an end in 1980, my dad was a young 20-something-year-old man and uh, made his way with his newly found bride, my mother, to Harare, the capital of Zimbabwe. And there they began to search for the new dream of the new Zimbabwe, you know, and uh, I can just picture it, you know, these black people for the first time they can enter the cities because black people were not allowed to be in the cities in their own country. You needed a path from your white employer to be able to go in the cities. And, and so you have these young black people full of dreams. They've just come from the war and the, the, the war mantra and message has been one man, one vote, prosperity for all Zimbabweans. For all. So this is the time where your dreams and imaginations are, are just unbounded. Huge hope for the time, yes? Huge, huge hope for the time. And my so dad- So this is 1980, yes? This is 1980. Yeah. 1980. And at that time, I'm three years old uh, when this happened. So I lived through the last three years of the war, uh, you know, as a, as a toddler. And so- with with me as their firstborn son, my my mother and my dad begin to build this this dream. Both of them are not as educated uh, as as one would want to be, so they're starting really from scratch. And and I think the one thing I recognized growing up watching my mom and dad is this idea that you can through hard work, through respect for other people. And through digging into yourself and figuring out what you're good at, you can you can really build a life. But the, the most important thing my dad taught me, even growing up as a young man, is that uh, a life that is lived only for oneself is a life that's wasted. 
You've got to help people. You've got to find ways of helping people. And all his life, that's what my dad gave himself to. And and as I as I grew up, right up until you know the moment it reached the work I then did in Zimbabwe started. That's the one thing I I, I strove to do. In fact, when I left school, I didn't go into college. I went into uh, almost like a technical college, like a like a um, I don't know what you would call it. You know, here in the states, but in Zimbabwe, it's almost like an apprentice based. Uh, technical school so you're learning a craft straight away and I was you know 17 at the time and I went to learn a craft and I learned how I became an auto electrician so I could fix all the electrical bits of a vehicle but prior to that one of the things that had happened with my dad and I was that as I grew up in his home as a young man and my dad was the authority figure in his home we bumped heads you know we 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 had run it Right. I, I've never heard of a son bumping heads with his father before. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my never God. happened and with I mean, me and my dad. I'll have you know, Pastor. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure it didn't, Chris. <laughs> but you know, those are when it happens. It's it's terrible. It's it's just you know you know you know you you know you hate it. And uh, but I want to tell you a very quick story of one of those experiences that formed me. Um, and that formed this sense of respect for uh, my dad and this, but this sense of understanding of a life that is lived for other people. My dad worked very hard to send me to a good school. One of those good schools in Harare was a school called Prince Edward School. And Prince Edward School is a school for boys. And as you can tell, you know, was named, uh, you know, after one of the prominent British royals. And it's a school that highly held highly these principles of being a gentleman. We were actually referred to as considered gentlemen, you know, back in the day. And at the end of my, of my, of one of the sections of my schooling, I didn't do very well. Now, at that point, my dad, we already had six other, uh, I had five other siblings and I was the sixth. And my dad was managing what he had accumulated as savings or wealth very, very you know, meticulously. So everyone was getting one shot at a good school. You do what you need to do, and then you move on. And I hadn't done very well at the end of this particular year academically. And my dad sat me down and he said, listen, this is the way we're going to move forward. I don't have enough money to send you back into this school. It's costing too much money for you to go and repeat the level you that you haven't done well at, the level you have failed at. Let's just use the word fail, right? And so he says, so he, and he was very upset. And so he says, what we're going to do is, is I'm going to send you to another school. And it's a school that is not like this particular school. And it was a school that was about 300 kilometers away from home. And my, my mother's brother was the headmaster of that school. But let me give you an idea. And he was a fierce disciplinarian. That was one of the reasons my dad sent me there. And the school was like this, Chris. It was a school that had no running water, had no electricity. It was a school that did not have a fence around the school. So during the day and night, livestock, cattle, goats, everything just came onto the school. So many times when we came in for lessons in the morning, one of the first activities before we sat down to have our lessons was to clear the classroom of cow dung 
and chicken droppings and all of these things. The locals in the different villages at night would have come to the school sometimes, and some of them would have stolen the doors of the school. So most of the classrooms did not have doors uh, at this at this school. The the toilets we had are what we call pit latrine to- toilets. I don't know if you know any of those, but this is what was built at this school, so, and it was deep in the rural areas. And I was coming from Prince Edward, where it was a high quality boarding school, where you had we had television uh, provided for us as part of our entertainment uh, curricula. I played cricket and hockey; those were the sports that I played. I was a I was a I was a bowler. I was a medium pace bowler for the you. Were a hockey cricket. player? I was a hockey player. I played field hockey. Yeah, well, I, I I grew up in Canada, so I assume you didn't play the same hockey that I grew, uh, grew up playing. But uh, hockey's hockey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hockey's hockey for sure. Yeah. So so here I am, and I'm in the school, Chris, where the only sport that they have there is a cross country sports and uh, soccer, right? And I couldn't play soccer, so you, I was not in any of those sports. So this was a, a deeply under-resourced, and I felt like my dad had dumped me in the middle of nowhere. And I, I, we, would, we would study, we used to have these empty bottles of rum that we would, we would find. I won't tell you where we found the, the bottles of rum, but they were empty. And we would put paraffin in them. It, it's probably what you guys would call kerosene here. And, and at the top, you would have a, a top, you would make a hole at the top, you would drop a shoelace right into the, into the kerosene, and you would light that. And that was what we used as light for studying at night. And in so many cases, those little bottles of rock would explode as you studied. You'd have kerosene all over your clothes and all over, you know, your books and everything. And, and that was the experience I had for two years. I was upset with my dad. But... I saw a side of life that I never saw before in my life, Chris. I saw kids who walked upwards of 10 miles a day to get to school. I saw young girls who who would have woken up at four in the morning, prepare food for their families, and then get on the journey to go and, and, and get an education. And they did very well academically. And what broke my heart is that at the end of their academic pursuit, they were not able to go past or further into anything else because there were no opportunities. Their parents didn't know any better. And even if they did, they just didn't have the connections to be able to either proceed to university or to a place that appreciated the academic merit that they had displayed. It broke my heart. I I managed eventually to do well in my studies in that place thanks to my dad and my uncle. And I've always appreciated both men for that, even though I hated it when I when I began. And, and I assume and so, the, uh, your uncle and the school that he led instilled you with some discipline that maybe you didn't have when you arrived. Is that what I'm <laughs> to take from this, Pastor? Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, Chris. I was, people always say to me, you know, Pastor, you know, uh, you know, you know, you do, you know, you, you know, you know, you do these amazing things. Pastor. And I'm like, yeah, I wasn't always born. I wasn't born and no one is born in Pastor, right? You, you're, you're, you're born a child and you become what you become along the way. And, and and I think this is one of those places where I learned the discipline to, um, you know, to study or the discipline to uh, be appreciative of what you have and what other people do not have. But more importantly, the the desire to fight for other people, and and that became one of the things that I dedicated my life to. Even whilst I was in that situation in that school, 
uh, I dedicated my life to how do I find a way of helping other people. That in years to come, that contributed largely to me making the decision becoming a pastor and uh, going to serve in a church and, and Bible school. I actually left my corporate job at the time and, and decided that this is what I wanted to do. And it was always the pictures from way back in that school in the rural areas that drove me, you know, to do that. So fast forward, and Chris, feel free to jump in at any time. I talk too much. I, no, I no, you don't talk too much to me. Uh, no, nobody ever uh, celebrated me for my brevity. And uh, so, uh, no, I, I want to hear the whole story. I mean, who you are Barely. in the world is a legendary person. And, and what you, you and I'm sure many others who have worked with you have achieved to my limited understanding, because obviously I didn't grow up there, but what you've achieved in and for Zimbabwe is, um, is incredible. And so, yeah, I want to hear the whole story. Thank you, my friend. I, I appreciate uh, you giving me that, this opportunity in the space. Yeah. Well, you know, we're, well, fast forward to, to 2016, and I'm sitting in my small church office. I, at this point, I've been pastoring for, I think, the last maybe 15, 18 years because I began pastoring at a very young age. That was and, and how big was your parish? How big was oh, your flock? I, the parish that I looked after was very small. It was about 50. So you were not a famous um, pastor. Oh, no. You, oh, no. You were, you were a mean, pastor in a, in, in, for a small flock. For a very small for, flock. For, for more than a decade. For more than a decade. The, the thing is this, is that I had gotten the opportunity prior to starting this church that we started, that we were looking after. I had been a youth pastor before at another church, which was a, a very big church. And, and again, that's where my love grew for just developing people and just saying to people, you can do it. You can, you can be better. You can be a helper of people. In fact... We had a song, if you ask any young person that I looked after, there was a song way back in the day that had been sung by uh, Hillsong. No, sorry, it wasn't Hillsong. It could have been Delirious, I think, one of the two. It's, uh, it was an early Christian uh, rock band. And it was a song called History Maker. We wore this song down called History Maker because of what it spoke. And it began by saying, is it true today? that when people pray, kings and queens will shake? Is it true that when people pray, we'll see miracles and we'll see broken hearts being mended and making history? And I lashed onto that song because I felt like, I felt like it, it spoke of my life. Oh, Chris. Yeah, I, I, I will never forget that. It, it it, it, it felt like it was my own life anthem. And so every time before the youth meeting started, I'd say to the young people, we're going to sing history making. And make that, let that be a declaration over your life. I know it doesn't look like it now. It doesn't feel like it now. But that's what you are here to do with your life. is to make history, right? And so that became... That became something that we did every Friday and Saturday when we met with young people. Uh, they all knew every time I got up, you know, they would be like, oh my gosh, Pastor, he's going to make us sing that song. And we always got into history making and we just <laughs> pumped up and fired up young people. 
Um, and little did we know that we were creating with our words the future that we wanted to live in or to or to impact, which is which is one of the things that I've learned in my Pastor, life. Pastor, I hate to interrupt you. Can you say that exact sentence again? We discovered that it wasn't just a song, but that we were creating with our words the future that we wanted to be a part of and that we wanted to live in. Yes, thank you. And 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 you know what, Chris? That's something that I have learned to embrace over the years. Is that your words are powerful? They're powerful. You create with your words the present and the future that you want to be able to to live in. Um, and it may it may take time, but it'll come. You know, and it's it's your words that you speak. And I've always say to people, don't hold back from speaking. Speak it into existence. Every idea that that is never spoken or that 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 is never let out into into people's ears is an idea that dies. You've got to speak it. Got to let it out. So um, I'm sitting in my small church office, 2016. Now I have about 15 years of pastoring behind me, and the last six had been in our own small parish where, and now we were parents as well at this time. And so I'm sitting in a place now where I'm a different person than I was when I met the youth ministry. I'm a different person than I was when I was at this rural school. I'm a different person than I was when I was at Prince Edward. And so different from the three-year-old at Independence watching their, their parents come into this, into this new Zimbabwe. And I'm faced with a reality that is not adding up to the things I've been hoping and praying for. And the, the reality is that Zimbabwe has collapsed over and over again. The reality is that Zimbabwe is a nation that has become hell on earth instead of being the place of prosperity that we all hoped it would become. I'll give you an idea of, of how things had unfolded very quickly. In 2016, the economy was starting to collapse, but in 2008, Zimbabwe's economy had collapsed so badly that we ended up with a $100 trillion note as the largest banknote that we had. In fact, I believe it's the largest legal banknote ever issued in the history of money. One that was 2008, dollars. That was 2008. One trillion. Uh, exactly. 100 trillion, not one trillion. 100 trillion. 100 trillion dollar note. Exactly. 100. And by the way, Chris, that's $100 trillion after the government had slashed off three zeros because of the way inflation had run away. So if you add another three zeros to the 12 zeros of the 100 trillion, I'm not sure. I'm not good at mathematics. I don't know what number you get, but you get a really big banknote. All right. And at the height of inflation in 2008, that was not enough to buy a loaf of bread. Okay. Its inflation was running at between 286 to 300 million percent per annum. Wow. I remember clearly standing in a, in a line trying to buy bread the one time. And the price of bread was increasing by the hour. So what bread cost when you entered the line for bread was a far different price from what it cost when it was your turn to buy, to buy the bread. 
so so this was hyperinflation in 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 I mean it rewrote the books of economics and in, in ways that somebody who never lived through it like I have no I've experienced inflation in my life but I lived in North America my entire life I have no basis for comparison Oh man this is this is in another universe yes. completely and it's and it's destroying families because how can you live you can't everything you can't buy bread and even if you do if you buy it today tomorrow it's some meaningful percentage higher and so maybe you can't buy it tomorrow oh listen i mean to give you an idea of what you're saying imagine having savings as a retirement in the bank and inflation hits at that rate and then the government puts a ban on any withdrawals so nobody is allowed to make withdrawals in a sense they try to control the run on banks so everything you have ever worked for starts to erode right before your eyes my parents and many people from my parents' generation who I knew at that time who had retired comfortably because my parents had worked in government service in the 80s and, and uh, uh, retired in the early, uh, the very early 90s had saved up. And so, so by you, 2008, you, they were in kind of a wind-down economic mode and hopefully enjoying their lives yes, and their children and, and grandchildren lives, and doing what everybody wants to do if you've manage to manage yourself successfully and have retirement and so forth. Yes. Mm -hmm. But exactly. gone. But immediately it, gone. This immediate. I mean, when I say immediately, I mean, literally imagine having $80,000 US dollars in your bank account as retirement in a place like Zimbabwe. That's a lot of money. 80,000 in your bank account. And in five days, you go back to the bank and there's 25 cents left. 25 cents and you're 68 years old. What do you do? So that was 2008, but we already had, prior to that, had gone through so many other collapses. And then we were talking about a collapse of our uh, medical, our health delivery system, a collapse of our education system, a collapse of our freedoms and the political space because the election had been stolen so many times. People had been, been brutalized and beaten. In 1982 to 1984, around about maybe 85, Robert Mugabe had killed thousands of people in the south of the country who he felt posed a threat to him and to his hold on power. So he just sent a North Korean trained army unit, Zimbabwean army unit, into the south of the country and just basically gave them the instruction, if you find males of this particular tribe, kill them. They killed up to 30 up to 20,000, almost 30,000 people. An idea of some, how some of these people would be killed. They would be pulled from their homes while sleeping. They would be either, you know, beaten to death or shot to death. And then they would get the wives of these men to dig graves, bury them at gunpoint, and then force the wives to dance on top of their husband's graves. This is the kind of person we were dealing with. And in 2016, we were now beginning to go through a rerun of the 2008 economic collapse. But I was now a grown-up. Robert Mugabe, who had been a hero to me and many young people in the early 80s, was now a villain. This man, who had been in power for almost 40 years, had stolen everything that we had hoped for. You talked about the pictures you've seen of me holding the Zimbabwe flag. And there's a reason for that. But let me move as quickly as I can through you this. Take, you bit. take your time, Pastor. I, I'm here to listen and thanks, learn. Thanks again, Chris. Yes, you take your time. You're, you're very kind. So you have no, uh, there's no hurry in this discussion. I, I want to hear everything you want to share. 
So I'm sitting in my small office now in 2016. I'm a father. I have two little children and I have a third one on the way. And I already lost what I lost in 2008. And now we're losing again. The little bit that we had rebuilt, we had starting to lose again because the country is beginning to collapse. So from and eight to 16, there's some kind of a rebound. You're starting to feel a little better. Exactly. There's light. There's more hope. There's, there's more some, hope. There's some more economic prosperity starting to emerge. And then 16 happens. And then 16 happens and we go right back into it. And, and, so, and, so, and so tell me exactly what happened. I mean, of course I've read it, but I want to hear your perspective. How does it look to you and, and many of the people in the country as, as what happened happens? What happens at this point is that the corruption in the country and the mismanagement of the national resources begins to, to take place at a very, very alarming rate. Now, if you're an ordinary person in Zimbabwe, you might not have known that this had been going on for years. The enrichment of the political elite uh, who were protected by the military machinery that they own in the country. And this meant that the national resources were being looted. For example, President Robert Mugabe actually said in a speech in 2015 that $15 billion worth of diamond revenue had gone missing from Treasury. $15 billion. It's on record. He said it himself. Not one single person was ever held accountable for that. Now, imagine just over the years, just how much the country has lost, how much has been taken from us. And we got to a point where all of that had been stolen. And when there was no more resources to steal, the government began to take people's money in their bank accounts. This is the depth of, of selfishness and greed, is that it never has enough. And, and sometimes I've said to people who make money, how much is enough? How much, when will you say, you know what? I'm made, even if you're making it legally, when are you going to say, I haven't made enough money. It's, it's, and I know it's a controversial thought, but we spend our lives pursuing this thing, pursuing this, this, this figment of, of our, or this, this thing that symbolizes success or this thing that guarantees us a luxurious life. How many houses can you live in at one go? How many cars can you drive to your heart's content in one day and feel like you've driven enough? How many nice clothes could you put on in one day? If you, if you put on one suit and took it off in the next hour and put on another set of clothes in one hour and took them off and put on another set of clothes in the next hour, how many outfits could you put, put on and feel like you've put on some really good clothes? It's funny, um, as a side note, I grew up with, uh, in a modest circumstance, um, yeah. by North American standards, of course. Mm -hmm. And a uh, single mother uh, started working at age of 10 or 11 with a paper route. Anyway, um, and I didn't graduate high school. I got thrown out of school. Turns out I have dyslexia and a number of other learning differences. Um, yeah. And so the question in my young life, Pastor, was, you know, is Christopher going to make it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And so money was a giant, giant missing. And I can honestly tell you I've made enough. And I came to that realization many years ago now. Um, And it doesn't mean I won't make more, but I am not striving for money anymore. Mm, that's that's so important, Chris. Well, one of the questions I always ask people, and I learned this like virtually everything I learned in my life the hard way, is do you own your money or does your money own you? Oh, what a powerful question. You know, and the interesting thing about that question is I know people who comparatively have very little who are not owned by their money and are loving their life. Yeah. And I know billionaires who argue with their spouses over money and who are made crazy by the fact that there are other people who are worth five or 10 times more than they are. It, it makes them crazy. Oh my God. Oh my God. Cause you see you're up all night. This is what happens that you live your whole life making the money and then you spend the rest of the money counting that money and trying to protect it and trying to guard it. Well, and here's the other thing I hope certainly I learned is um, yes, there's a certain amount of money that um, makes you comfortable and, and successful and provides you with some security for yourself and your family and even some luxuries, if you like. That's great. Yeah. But when you make anything more than you need for your family, here's the truth. The greatest thing to do with it is to share it with lots of other people. Exactly. No, really. You know, exactly. we're, we're, uh, it's going to be my birthday in a few weeks. And we're going to have a happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. And we're going to have a big party. Uh And we're going to go to a wonderful restaurant and we're going to have friends. And we're because if you're able to do something like that, anything that we love is multiplied by infinity when we do it and include other people that we love. So my point is, there's no point in going to a nice restaurant with nobody. (laughs) what's way more powerful is going to a nice restaurant and be surrounded in a room with every, with every person you look at as somebody you love. (laughs) That's amazing, Chris. And because that, you see, that's, what's more valuable, you see. So it's, I have respect for people who figured out how to make a lot of money. That's first of all, it takes skill. It takes commitment. It takes time. And then, and then the next level of success or, or the next level is how you spend that money. How you, where do you, how do you deploy it? How do you deploy that? Right. And so I'm intrigued by people on both sides of that thinking, those who earn and accumulate it and devote their lives to the accumulation and protection of it for themselves. And those who earn, accumulate it and then spend their lives giving back to other people, making other people's lives better. And then they go back and earn more because they discover that giving it away is so much fun, that changing other people's lives is so much fun and so amazing. So they go and make more. Yes. And, and that for me, is, I just have loads of respect for people and organizations who, who think like that because that is what is going to change the world. That is what is going to change people who are nations that are led by by people who have that kind of thinking. Yes. Why do you get into public service? You get into public service because it's, it's, it is to serve the public. Why do we have to explain something that's so self-explanatory? You were there, you're there to serve the public, not serve yourself, right? So, so 
you know, we in Zimbabwe. Do you, Pastor, we, I, do you know the Bob? Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Do you know the Bob Dylan song about this? No, carry on. I'd love to hear it. Where he sings, well, it might be the devil and it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. <laughs> and the whole, I believe that's the name of the song. The whole song, the whole refrain in the song is you're going to have to serve somebody. And, but, but you see, that is, and that, oh man, that is such a truth. Because our, our lives, the, the, oh, let me put it this way for you, Chris. The quality of your life will be determined not by who serves you, but by who you serve. Right? No matter who you are, whether you are the newly coronated King of England, or whether you are a young street boy in the streets of Harare in Zimbabwe, the quality of your life is, is not determined by who serves you, but by whom you serve. The question is, how many people have walked away with a piece of your service rather than how many people's service have you walked away with? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, you have to hold me every back time. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna preach your whole thing down. Oh, you, please do, Pastor. <laughs> <laughs> you, you could get as preachy as you want with me. <laughs> and so, and, and and again, you know, it is the big battle of our lives that we live out every single day. You know, is is how do I, how do I, how do I keep myself from wanting to devote my life to my comforts? How do I keep myself from, from, from wanting to spend myself for myself and instead get myself to spend myself for others? Yes. Because yes. that's the great use of life, Chris, is, is to spend it for the benefit of other people. It could be your children. It could be your children that I am I'm building this wealth so that my children have, have have my grandchildren this is a scripture that that I love so much the Bible it says a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children right amen I, amen <laughs> amen so, we have so, to learn so part, you know, of, part of being an adult is we have to learn to be great providers oh yes oh yes so now and, pastor please take me back to 2016 so, so your, your country is in crisis. It's, You're I mean, a pastor at a very small a church. Pastor, and I'm a dad. Yes. A How dad. many children at that point do you have? I have, I have two children. I have a five-year-old and three-year-old, and I have a third one on the way. Oh, congratulations. You know, and I'm sitting in a small office, Chris, and yeah. I'm thinking to myself, I'm failing to put food on the table for my family. I'm a bright young person. I, 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 I have, there's no excuse for this kind of failure, except that our nation is being mismanaged, except that our nation is beginning to destroy the very things that its own people are producing. And so I'm sitting in my church office and some friends of mine and I had been meeting at my house every Friday night at midnight to pray for our country. I believe in prayer. 
And so we would pray for Zimbabwe, just asking the Lord to help our nation. We were scared of saying anything publicly. Because when you live in a di dictatorship that has killed and brutalized people, you learn, you learn to keep quiet. You learn to hide. You learn not to criticize the government publicly. You learn to hold yourself back. You learn to keep your place and to, to keep your spot. You learn to mind your own business. And so I'm sitting in my office and I'm thinking this country has taken everything. Everything that we have had. My grandfather who went to the war, that war took his life for this country. My father, when he came out of the war, this government, they took everything that he has had and he's, he's had as a 60 plus year old man has to toy in every single day like he did nothing with his life. And now me, I've gone through the same thing. And my children are about to go through the same thing. Four generations that have been destroyed by the same, the same idea, the same government. So I'm sitting in my small church office and I grabbed the Zimbabwe flag, which is where the Zimbabwe flag comes into this whole story. And I start to remember what they taught us the flag meant when I was in primary school. And the Zimbabwe flag has all these colors, you know. It looks, to the uneducated eye, it just looks beautiful to me. It's a, and it is. It's yeah, it looks majestic. Flag. Yes. Oh, it's a beautiful flag. And the colors on there mean something. They used to teach us that the, the, the green that borders the flag on both sides, that stands for the, the agricultural backbone of the economy that Zimbabwe had. Zimbabwe for years was known as the bread basket of Southern Africa. We used to produce enough food for ourselves and we used to export foods to everyone else. I mean, our farming and our farming lands were up. The beef we produced was export quality. The flowers we produced, the fruit we produced, everything was exported and we had enough to feed ourselves. It was an amazing country. And that's what the green stands for. The, the yellow stands for the rich mineral deposits in Zimbabwe. We have everything from gold, titanium, to lithium, to platinum, to diamonds, to chrome, anything Zimbabwe has. The red in the flag stands for the blood that was shed for the liberation of Zimbabwe and those that laid their lives down for it. The black in there stands for the black majority who could now become citizens, full citizens, of their own country with the right to vote. The white stands for peace. That's, you know, that's in there. The bird, the Zimbabwe bird stands for the majestic uh, eagle, fish eagle that represents the Zimbabwean spirit. I mean, there's, there's so much in there, but I sat there yes. and questioned the truth of this flag 38 years after independence. And I remember looking at it and I thought this, this flag actually, if anything, it is a lie. None of this is true. None of it is true. We have not, the agricultural side of our country has collapsed so much that we can't feed ourselves anymore. We, we import everything and people are dying of hunger in Zimbabwe, a country that could feed itself. We are now dying of hunger. The mineral wealth has been depleted and stolen. We don't know where it is. No one knows. No one, no one knows who stole it. No one knows fifteen billion dollars of diamonds. Fifteen. I mean, that's it's it's crazy. Just recently, 
they released uh, uh, one of the news networks released uh, a an investigation into the plunder of the country's gold through money laundering that has been happening in Zimbabwe. Right. So everything on this flag, I could I could go through all of it, and so I leaned into. My, I remember taking my phone. I was so upset in that day, Chris. I'd spent the day trying to figure out how do I feed my family. And I had come short. I'd been thinking, who do I borrow money from? Where do I go? Because I need to take some food home. And I assume I assume all your parishioners are experiencing very similar They're things in their lives. the same thing. Right. So exactly. it's not like others in the community are in a position to help you or you're not in a position to help others because everybody's going through it. Yes? Everybody is going through this. Chris. And you're sitting here going, this is going to happen for the fourth generation and it's go going to happen forever unless. Unless. And that's the point at which I, I took my phone. I remember I had sitting on my desk as I always do. I always have my Bible and I'd always have my phone. And I remember I took my phone. And I don't know what came over me. I was just, I was angry. I was frustrated. I was upset. And I took my phone and I propped it up against my Bible like this. And it was in video mode and I was holding the Zimbabwe flag. And I just began to speak into that, into that phone. And if you see that video, the original video is called this flag, hashtag this flag. I was crouching in trying to fit into the frame. And I just began to speak about how I felt about Zimbabwe. And part of what I spoke about in that video was the need for Zimbabweans to find the courage, to find the courage to stand up. And one of the things I said in there was, quit standing on the sidelines and hoping that somehow things will fix themselves because it can't happen without you. You and I have to stand up. You and I have to ask the questions. You and I have to speak into existence that which we want to see. And so I, I finished recording this, this video. And, you know, back, I didn't know how to add music soundtracks to this. So what I actually had at the time, whilst I was recording this video, my laptop was on the side and it was playing some, some mood music from a YouTube clip. And so it was just picking up that music from there. It was that was that was kind of like my edit, you know. Um, and after I'd finished, I watched this clip. It was four minutes long. I remember watching it, and I got. So, I remember thinking to myself, "Delete that immediately. You will you're like there is no way you. This is. But you, I mean, you're, you're literally living in a country where posting that video could cause the end of your life. Of course. Of course. I mean, this is not somebody in the United States posting this video. This is a whole no, other no. thing. This is a whole, the stakes are radically a, different. This, you're this not. This is oh yes. I mean, this is so so. The risk factor here is, I mean, I'm so. When I posted this eventually, which was much later than the time I had recorded it, because I was wrestling with the idea of should I post it, should I not. And in between, I had to wrestle with the idea, should I show my wife, should I not? Because I knew if I showed her, 
I mean, that could no have way. been the end of that. Like, there's no yeah. way, no way, no she way. was going to let me post that. And I got home with this video and, and it was on my phone and I waited until late at night when my family had gone to bed and I watched it one more time. And I remember asking myself the question, who, who do you expect? Like, if you believe what you said in that video posted, if you don't believe it, delete it and never speak a word about it again. And that was my own, almost my own ultimatum. If you believe it, post it. If you don't believe it, delete it, but forever hold your peace. You might as well disqualify yourself from this conversation because you don't believe it. So I went ahead and I posted this and I didn't have a huge followership, you know, uh, Chris. I had a very small followership at the time. I always laugh about the fact that I used to post my my videos on on different teachings, scriptural teachings, and you know those those used to have. I mean, they had a whooping thirty five views a month, right? And and you know of those thirty five, a good seventeen were friends of mine that I had actually said, "Hey, get onto my Facebook page and exactly. watch this video." <laughs> you had to manipulate your friends and family and to I watch it. To. <laughs> I woke up in the morning, I was on the school run and dropped my kids off at school, woke up in the morning and a friend of mine called me and said, hey, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine, what's up? And he said, I've just seen the video on Facebook. And I said, and? And so he says, well, first of all, I don't know what you were thinking, but secondly, have you seen what's happening with the video? I said, no, what are you talking about? This is okay, you need to see it first and then call me back when you've seen it. I dropped the kids off at the school, got out of the kids' school, and just and literally parked by the side of the road because I was wondering what was happening. And I opened my Facebook page to look at this thing, and I got the shock of my life and had some maybe 200,000 views. By the morning, I was shaking, and it's what people were saying. They were talking about, this is amazing. This guy has said exactly what's on my heart. I was, I've been afraid to say this thing. You know, this, this, then we must start a revolution. And that's when I was like, whoa, 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 wow. Wait a minute. I am not, this was not about starting a revolution. This was not. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to go back in the comments to walk back this video. And it's not working. It's not working. I'm trying to say to people, listen, I wasn't, I did not say overthrow. I did not say remove the government. I did not say anything about politics. I just said, we need to fix the country. And if anyone cares, then we must speak up. Then we must be present when it's happening. People were not having it, Chris. They were not taking, they were like, no, dude, this, this thing, this is our moment. This thing is. So, you know, we, a friend of mine who was in communication said to me, hey, this is not a problem, dude. Here's what we do is, why don't you record a second video? And in the video, what you do is you explain exactly what you were saying and what you were not saying. I said, okay, cool, let's do that. So we make this video and I begin to explain what I was not saying. And then I start to explain what I was saying. And in the process of explaining what I was saying, I really became quite, uh, you know, you know, almost emphatic about it. And so we post the video and that second video goes even more viral than the first one. And I'm like, I said this room, I look, this is not working. It just looks like people feel like this, you know, so he says, no, 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 but why don't we just record a third one and, and, and we'll fix it this time. And so we go ahead and we record a third video and the same thing happens. And by this point, we, we start to discover that, wait, there's a moment, something is happening here. 
And and whilst it's scary and whilst we may be trying to contain it, we have a choice to either walk away from it or to lean into this. And and at that point, I'm shaking you because I'm saying it now. But at that point, I make the decision to lean into this. I make the decision that this is a a moment for which I was not really prepared for in terms of political training, in terms of civic engagement. But I felt like it was a moment in my journey that had chosen me. I hadn't really chosen it. It chose me. And that something was happening here that I needed to lean into and put all the passion, put all the, uh, 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 you know, all the preparation I'd ever had as a pastor of speaking to people's future, of getting people to speak about themselves, to craft the future they want, to to believe in better, to have hope. Like this was the moment to now bring it forth. And so, without even thinking or planning, I get onto Facebook again and I say. I'm going to make a video every day for 25 days in the month of May. I remember it was the month of May, from 1st of May to the 25th of May. Um, so this, the period I'm in right now, in fact, today, this is an anniversary month uh, for me, for that in 2016. Oh, wow. And, Pastor, oh, congratulations. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, boy, how, so, how life in Zimbabwe has changed since you uploaded oh, your my videos. God. I mean, it's unbelievable, Chris, you know, when, when you think about it, you know. How much longer after those three videos did you end up in prison? Well, what happened after those three videos is that I went through this almost one month of uploading a video a day. Every day I would load a three-minute video to Zimbabweans talking about why we need to speak up, why we need to be present, why it matters, when we would simplify matters. It would make just three minutes of it would simplify what the issue was, simplify why what we need to do to, you know, why we need to speak up and what would happen if we don't. And in June of that same year, the government decided that they were going to introduce a new currency still. So they were not listening to anything we were saying. Videos going viral didn't mean anything to them. That's when I then called the first protest. We had never made in public because it's illegal in Zimbabwe to congregate people in public for purposes of uh, protest, particularly a political protest. And so the idea was, we're going to call a protest, which is a reverse protest, a boycott. I'm going to ask people to stay at home. And I'll ask you to not open your businesses, not go to work, not take your kids to school, not get on the street, not go to the supermarket. Let's just make the whole country into a complete ghost town or a ghost country. And it was tough because, again, you know, here I am, a pastor of about 50 people, I have videos going viral, but going viral doesn't mean people, you know, are following or listening. It can mean anything. It can, you could be entertainment. You could just be someone that people are shocked at what you're doing. A- anybody so, who go, who has gone viral knows that it doesn't really, I mean, it, 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 it doesn't affect very much it, and you have no more money and you have no more power and you're exactly. still a pastor with a small flock releasing videos on Facebook. That's <laughs> all you are, Who's right? a dad and trying to make a difference in the world. And so, Chris, this is this edges now to that first arrest because what then happens is I make this call and it's a call that I make not knowing how what the reach was. But it's a call I make and say to people, I've been talking to you for the last three months. I don't know if what I'm saying means anything to you. If it does... 
I'm asking you and me to join with me in this one action, which is one day. I'm just asking you for one day, one day in which we show this dictator that we have a voice, that we're alive, that we, that we can't take this anymore. Just one day. They can't arrest all of us. I'm not asking you to get on the street. I'm not asking you to, 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 to say anything from your own personal account or place. I'm just asking you to participate by not being there. How easy can that get? We've been afraid to do this all our lives. Shall we be afraid to do the easiest thing? I'm asking you not to be there, but I'm asking you to be there by not being there. It's so powerful. Because had you and asked you, everybody to go to their town square or or, or 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 the capital or whatever, they're risking their lives to do that. And they were not coming. Right. They were not going to come. Not for right. a guy on Facebook. No, they're right. not coming. <laughs> Some pastor they never heard of. <laughs> it's just like, who are you? How the hell? I mean, and then this is also in an economy where where people are living on less than two, three dollars a day. So every day counts. You're asking me to skip a day of my $3. And so I make this call and put the video out and literally go and hide because now I don't. Now I'm, my, and I had two or three friends who were now kind of helping me and they're like, if no one listens, we're done. First of all, the, the, the movement is completely over. The so-called movement is over. And secondly, they're coming for you, right? The big day are coming for you. And so we made the call, um, and it was it was for six July, two thousand and sixteen. Wednesday, six July, two thousand and sixteen. I remember saying that over and over again in the video. Wednesday, six July, two thousand and sixteen. We are shutting Zimbabwe down. Wednesday, six July, two thousand and sixteen. We are shutting Zimbabwe down. Such outsized words for me. I mean, on God's green earth are you. You are going to shut Zimbabwe down. We have to call this protest in 48 hours, Chris, because if we called it for too long, we would be shut down. They would come for us. Yes. Yes. So we called it in two days. Two days. I said to people, we have two days to get this done. Today is the fourth. On the sixth, I'm asking you to do this. The day came the day came, Chris, and we estimate that about 9 million people participated in this shutdown and our population was about 12 million people. So yeah, almost the entire country came to a complete standstill. It was both the most exciting moment and the most terrifying moment of my entire life because we realized what we had done. We realized that the impossible had happened, but we also realized that we had slapped the lion in the face. And lions tend to attack back, don't they? Oh my gosh. And so the hunt was on after this was done. Um, the whole the whole day, the country came to a complete stand. Everyone was talking about, oh my gosh, who is this guy? What's going on? You know? What is what is all of this that's happening with this guy? You know, you know who was is the media reaching guy? out to you? Were you doing television interviews or newspaper or interviews the, or things along those lines? Oh, that was afterwards. Yeah, I mean, yeah. This time now, we I was in hiding. I was living in hiding. I lived in hiding for about a week after this was okay. done. 
And eventually what they did is the regime went and they threatened my wife, my pregnant wife, and my two children. And the man who was my lawyer at the time, who was my representative from the Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights, um, said to me, listen, I think that the, the wise thing to do here is going to is going to be for you to give yourself up. It's easier for you to give yourself up and we know exactly where you are and in whose hands you gave, we gave you to rather than for you to be picked up or abducted from somewhere and be taken where we don't know where you are because that is what the, um, the regime did. So I went and handed myself in and I was immediately charged. Um, I was immediately charged with um, attempting to overthrow a constitutional government. Um, it was a treason charge uh, that gave me about 20 years in prison he found guilty. That night, I was taken in, I was interrogated, um, I was uh, beaten, um, and um, I, was, uh, I was tortured, um, and, and, and almost regretted. Um, I regretted what I had done, because it was a very difficult moment. They they threatened my family whilst I was in there. Uh, one of the things that the men who was punishing me said was, you don't know what's happening to your family right now. And so you are not only hurting yourself, but you're hurting your wife and your children with what you're doing. You're putting them in danger. And it freaked me out so much. I, I remember... I, I was I broke down so much that my my I just, my whole body just shook from not even from pain but just from the stress and the anxiety of what could have been happening to my to my children and to my wife who was pregnant at the time yeah um so they were physically we, torturing you and they were mentally torturing you with these yeah. thoughts about what they might be doing to your loved oh, yeah. ones oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it, it was a it was a very very difficult uh, time that made me realize the reality of this journey. Um, and if there was a moment to tap out, it would have been then. If there was a moment to say I did not want to do this and I completely regretted, it would have been then. And would they have shown you some mercy had you said those sorts of things, Pastor? I don't think that that would have happened, no. Chris. There is no, there is no. You cannot put the genie back in the in the bottle, right? At that point, once once you are perceived to be a threat, you will always be a threat, and so. Whilst I I did regret it in my heart, I kept that to myself and just prayed that my family would be well. And the most profound miracle took place the following day. And that miracle broke me and molded me in, in the most incredible of fashions. The police officer came to my cell in the morning 
to pick me up and take me to court for the beginning of trial. And and you had been brutally beaten. Oh yes. So I had it, been beaten the night before, so you were not in great shape. No, not at all. I hadn't slept. Right, of course. Strangely enough, I, I actually did not feel the physical pain that morning because my mind kept thinking about whether my family was okay. Yes, yes. So uh, the sense of actually feeling the physical pain wasn't even really present with me because my mind was just thinking, I just need a word to know that they are okay. I just need someone to come and tell me that they're fine. That's all I need to know. And and thankfully, a friend of mine brought me that information in the morning when he came um, and he didn't get a chance to see me. He just brought some food, which I didn't eat, by the way, because the, the, not only wanting to, not wanting to eat, but because the fear of being poisoned was a very real fear. here. And he, the police officer came and said to me, someone came and to tell you that your family is okay and that your wife and the, and the children are okay and that your wife will be here at the courts uh, for your trial. And she was pregnant. So he says, but, but we're going to delay going. There's a crowd of about 200 people that have Zimbabwe flags at the courts. They're singing and chanting and praying about your release. And we're just going to send a right place unit to clear them out. And, uh, you know, we'll, then we'll be on my way. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, 200? Like, from where? And he goes, yeah, we don't know. It's just that, you know, they're your people. And I'm like, no, whoa, 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 they're not my people. You know, we, I only have 50 people in our I church. don't have 200 people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I don't know, maybe 50, but I don't know where they are that, I don't know whose people. Did my 50 well, bring a bunch of friends or what's going on here? And he just says, well, all we know is that they're asking that you get released. He comes back an hour later, Chris. And he says, Ivan, we're going to delay again by another hour. That crowd is about 500 people now. Um, and you know, you know, we just want to monitor this. So we're going to, we don't want people to get hurt and, you know, and we're also increasing the security that's going to take you there. Um, he comes back an hour later and says, Hey, listen, we're staying another hour. It's going to be, there's about a thousand people that have gathered and this crowd, he keeps coming back hour after hour. And the number he keeps bringing me back is a number that is not adding up with, in terms of what I like, wait. How, who, where are these people coming from? Like we live in a country where people don't always show up for protest and, and I didn't call them. And, and, and where are they getting the gumption to do this? And by the end of the day, there's about 8,000 people that have gathered at the courts. They've, they're, they're draped in flags. They're singing, they're praying, calling for my release. And. It's about 7 p.m. now. The courts have closed, but the people refuse to go home. And so eventually they drove me to the courts in a small car uh, with dark windows. Nobody knew, and we drove right through this crowd, Chris. It's probably one of the most amazing things I'd ever seen. And we got into the courts, and people are, I mean, they have thrown the insides of the courts are packed, jam-packed with people. And they are singing, they are praying. I mean, it was wild. And in between the session of this, it was actually a bail hearing or a bail trial. In between, as the magistrate takes a break, supposedly to go and hear from the authorities, what should I do with this man? Because the crowds are increasing outside and it's becoming an increasingly volatile situation. 
I'm sitting in the cell at the at the courts, and I hear this crowd sing. And I'm sitting there, and this tears just start. Do you remember, Pastor, what they were singing? They were singing. There's a song that the old church in Zimbabwe used to sing, and it says, "And Zimbabwe shall be singing, and Zimbabwe shall." Be singing, the Holy Spirit must come down, and Zimbabwe shall be saved. And you know, Chris, at that point, I suddenly realized that it it wasn't a, it wasn't about me. It wasn't. It was. It was happening to me, but it was not about me. It was about thousands of people who had suddenly found the courage to stand up for the first time in their lives. They found an opportunity. They found something to hold on to. They found some hope to stand up to something that had scared them, something that had stolen from them, something that had destroyed them. This was their moment. That's why I went through what I went through last night. So that a whole nation could stand up and say we're not going to work. And then could mobilize themselves without being called by anyone. And get to the courtroom to stand not not for me, but to stand with me. To stand with their children. To stand with their future. A future that they wanted to see. It was a profound moment, Chris. You could, there's many things you could say we failed it in Zimbabwe. That moment is not one of them. This is no one of them. We, we stood up. We stood up. Ordinary people with no guns. Ordinary people with nothing. Ordinary people who had lost everything, who were considered to be weak and scared and cowards, stood up. And by the end of the evening, the magistrate had no choice but to let me go. People could not believe it. Zimbabwean courts are not courts that let you go immediately in a situation like that. But people had camped outside. They were making sandwiches for each other. They, they brought candles. They, they, they were going to stay the whole night. And uh, they let me go. That night, there's a, it's a discussion for another day. The, the, the escape from that courtroom was dramatic. There were thousands of people. I was let go into this sea of people. There's a there's a video clip I only saw months after I had left. And I'm just standing in this sea of people who are just jubilant. So so oh. tell me what that's like. You walk out of the courthouse, a free man, like, and there's eight thousand plus people there. Put, put oh, me yeah. in put me in your shoes, Pastor. I walk out of the door. And immediately the crowd sees me. The first group of people see me and they start yelling out. He's free. Pastor Ivan is free. They grab me immediately. And I remember this against my every effort to stay with my feet planted on the ground. I just suddenly got hoisted up into the air and just began to be passed down as people would do someone at a at a at a rock concert, right? Yeah, at, at punk was, concerts we call it crowd surfing. So <laughs> that's within, exactly what happened. <laughs> so you come out, 
they start screaming he's free. Oh my god. Pastor gosh. Yvonne is free. And and seconds later you're crowd surfing. And so what's what's that like? It's wild. It was a wild thing. Because you go from being being incarcerated and you go into finding out that you're free. And then you go be to being free in this crowd, but you're being pulled in every direction. And there's a stampede. Now you're starting to wonder, have I just been set free so I can die in this crowd? <laughs> Wait a minute. This could go horribly wrong here. It was it was looking real good a few <laughs> seconds ago. <laughs> it was a wild moment, but I felt like I knew every one of those people. They yelled my name like they'd known me for years. They they greeted me like 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 we had been we had been in prison together. Like they I mean, and it was that feeling, the camaraderie, the the feeling of the feeling of we did it, the feeling of thank you, the gratitude. It was amazing, Chris, to sense it. And I remember my my uh one of my lawyers finally got to me and he says, we're not going to break free. So what we're going to do is to ask everyone to sit down where they are. It's about 8, 9 p.m. now and it's dark. You have to understand that we have media everywhere. People are, I mean, it's just, it was wild, wild, wild. And he says, you're going to have to address the crowds and we get people to kind of calm down a little bit. And I gave a, a literally maybe a one and a half, two minute speech thanking people thanking them for their courage and their bravery and letting them know that the fight for our future was on, that the fight for our nation was on and that we should never put that down. And um, that happened and I eventually managed to get away um, through a friend, uh, some pastor friends who, who made sure I, I was picked up. But the whole city breaks into a street pond. People are driving in their cars, hanging out the windows, waving Zimbabwean flags. Honking horns. Oh, my God. We got a message that night through uh, somebody who I believe was one of the uh, police officers who was somewhere high up in the ranks. And he sent a message to one of my pastor friends and said, listen, it's not over. Um, I'm a believer in what the young man is talking about and I'm just letting you know that they're going to pick him up in the morning we have a warrant for his arrest being drafted as we speak so the decision had to be made do I stay and through my pastor friends the decision was that I had to leave that night and so I was driven six hours uh, clear across the country to a small little border um, through which I escaped and it was a border that had kind of no electricity no computers nothing so there was no Red there's no border guards. There was no, yeah, no challenge none. to you leaving. No, and no which, challenge. Yeah. Which country did, did you go to? So I escaped from Zimbabwe into Botswana into and Botswana. into South Africa. Yeah. Into South And I rendezvoused there with my family finally because we had to get them out. They were being threatened. They couldn't make this journey with me. And that itself was a whole nother story in terms of getting them out of the country. But we eventually managed to do that. And in South Africa, I met up with students. I, I think I spent about two weeks traveling from universities uh, to one university to the next, meeting Zimbabwean students in their thousands. And did you feel safe at that time in South Africa? I think there was a sense of safety, you know, Chris. Mm. But Zim South Africa is a place that 
that Zimbabwe is very easily able to reach into and snatch out whoever they want. And this is right. for, in, through, through on, on many levels. Number one, you know, Zimbabwe and South Africa share a mutual history for liber- the liberation yes. struggle. So the yes. governments that, that run both countries cooperate on many levels, including extraditions. Um, and in fact, the reason I ended up leaving South Africa was that Interpol had actually begun the process of issuing a red notice, um, which would mean that if I was found in transit in any airport or in any country that was a part of Interpol, I could be taken and um, arrested and taken back to Zimbabwe. So we left South Africa immediately. And again, we found out through well-wishers. The beauty of the movement and the things where it started was that they were people embedded in all these different government departments. I believed in what we were doing. And so they would get information out to us and say, be careful here, be careful there, use this border post. There's a, a notice has gone out to all border posts, but this one doesn't have any computers. But make sure you get your passport stamped so that you don't leave the country illegally in case you want to come back. And there were so many that came you know, as a result. And, um, and, and how long were you on the, on the run, Pastor? I was on the run for six months. With your family? Um, with my family. Yeah. And, and this is including arriving here in the United States, by the way. So for six months, I was on the run. And did you feel like you were safe once you got to the U.S.? I think that there's a, there's a sense, yes, of being safe physically. Okay. But I have to admit that the sense of freedom is is not there not because this is not a free country but because i'm not a free man I'm, i didn't want to be here you wanted to be home i wanted to be in zimbabwe yes. home yes so we were here for six months chris and my second my third daughter was born here um, in the united states here in the united states thank you that's wonderful and um she was amazing, you know, uh, and I held her, I was with her for a month and then that dreaded sense came back. Mm. I have to go back. And so you I said couldn't to my stay. wife, you could not leave it alone. I just, I just couldn't. I could not, Chris. Is this what people of faith often refer to as a calling? This is exactly it. There's... There's certain things that will give you no rest. You will not have a quality night's sleep until that calling or that purpose has been dispensed. And for me, I feel like it's a, it's not a curse, it's a gift. Because, because the thing about purpose is that when you fulfill it or when you live it out, because purpose is something that you live out. It's not a destination, it's a journey. When you live it out, it fulfills you in, in ways that defy the fulfillment that stuff can bring in your life. Yes. You, 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 you can be as poor, as they say, as poor as a church mouse. I don't know how poor that is but but if you're if you're living out your purpose if you're in a place where you feel like i am where i'm supposed to be doing what i'm supposed to be doing 
and doing it with or for the people I'm supposed to be doing it for. That is worth so much than any amount of money. It's worth so much than any experience of luxury or holiday or rest or sleep. It's better than sleep because in itself, it brings you a sense of rest or a sense of peace that, that it's done. And so I, I say to, to my wife, I, I'm going to go start. I've got to go back and bless her heart. She, she struggled with it because it didn't make sense to her. Um, and I don't think it made sense to a lot of people, but I had to go back. And so a month after my daughter was born, I, I packed my bag and, and said goodbye to my family and left. I arrived back in Zimbabwe on the 1st of February, 2017, and I was immediately arrested at the airport. They walked me off the plane. I was taken to a room at the airport. I was strip searched. I was questioned. I was interrogated. I was beaten by the intelligence um, officers. And then I was handed over to the Zimbabwe Republic police who immediately charged me with attempting to overthrow a constitution and elected government. That was my second charge. And I was taken to court. And this time, Chris, there were no crowds. This time there was no gathering. There were no thousands of people. It was just myself and my lawyer and a few other people that came. Did the Not community know you were back or had they kept it quiet? I think people knew, some people knew I was back, but so much was happening. Right. And it was and a again, scary time in the country, was it not? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, it was. It was. And I think the sense came back to me again, why do you do what you do? Will you do it if the crowds show up? Will you do it if they don't? Will you do it if you get the applause? Will you do it if you don't? Will you do it if you get the recognition? Will you do it if you don't? And that's the hard part about purpose, that you don't do it for the applause of people. You do it because it needs to be done. It's got to be done. And so I'm, I'm not released this time, and this time I'm sent off to Chikorubi Maximum Security Prison. And it's, it's different from the police cells I had been held at on my first arrest. I'm in leg irons and I'm in an actual prison. And there I begin another part of this journey. And, and a new Ivan begins to emerge from that. I was broken. I was tired. I was, uh, I was scared. And. On my first day, let me share this story with you and, and probably lead us more to a, a wrap up of this. But on my first day in the maximum security prison, something happened there that gave me a lot of faith. And a lot of faith, Chris. And I, I want to say this, just like the other things I told you, these miracles that have happened in this journey that have served to be a reminder 
that you're you're okay and that and that it's okay to take the next step. And and this is the thing is when you when you are pursuing what what is a what you believe is your life purpose, it could be anything. Maybe you're a business person, you're starting a business, maybe you're creating an invention, maybe you're studying for something. There are certain things that will happen along the way. There are little signs that just that just say to you, Hey Ivan, it's okay. Carry on. This is a you're 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 in the right place. It, it, it looks tough, but with this sign, just to let you know that you're okay. And it's my first day in prison in this maximum security prison. And all I've ever heard about maximum security prison is that you get beaten, you get raped, and you get abused. Uh, and they're dirty and they're filthy and just, just horrible. And all of those things were true and are true about Chikuribi Maximum Security Prison. I'm going to send you pictures when we're done of what Chikuribi Maximum Security Prison looks like on Please the inside. Do. Is it still there? Yeah. It, oh, of course, yes. This yes. is this is the, the, the national monument to, to to prisons in Zimbabwe. This is the, the prison this that is holds the, the place most where, dangerous. Yes. Yes. This, this is where they send worst. you when they want to send you a big message. Absolutely. And so... We're walking into this prison. It's late at night when I arrive. And all along the way, because I'm the only person in the back of this truck, I, I'm thinking to myself, they're not taking me to the prison. They're, um, they're taking me to be slaughtered. I'm going to get murdered. And a year before I started in 20, after in 2016, in 2015, a journalist, young journalist, um, had stood up and 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 he had he had done a one man protest in the town square with the sign that said "Failed Robert Mugabe must must step down." He had been snatched from a barbershop in his neighborhood within a week, and up to today, a young journalist has never has never been seen or heard from again. Nobody knows what happened to Itaizem. Itaizemana. No one knows what happened to him. He left his wife and his two kids, and so. We, we're driving to this maximum security prison and all I'm thinking about is that this is the end. Like, I'm dead. And there's one prison guard sitting with me in that truck. I'm so, I was so scared that the leg irons that they had put on me and the, and the handcuffs, were, they, I was, they were making a jingling sound, not from the moving truck, but because of how, how much I was, I was shaking. You're shaking uncontrollably. Man, I was, I was near to convulsion. This is, this is where I was. I remember almost my vision becoming blurry because I was, I was, it's almost as if I was just going into a, I don't know whether to call it a trance or into a, some sort of a, some sort of a coma. I don't know what was happening to me. And I remember the prison guard who was with me in that he was in a, in a cordoned off section uh, of the, of the van. And he, and he came and he, he stood, it's like a, a um, um, a wire mesh that divided and he stood there and put his fingers and then he was screaming, Pastor, are you okay? Are you okay? And, 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 and I remember sitting up and I said to him, please, would you not? And I think I had full, I mean, it was just bad. I said to him, please tell me if this is the, just, just be honest with me so I can at least spend the last few minutes of my life knowing what's happening. I just, I can spend that time in prayer for myself and for my children. Just tell me if this is the last time. Um, that I'm going to be alive. You know, you lose nothing. You've won. That's, it's the end for me. So tell me if that's the case. And he said to me, look, I, all I know is that we're going to the maximum security prison. And I want to tell you that you're going to be okay. At least you're going to be alive when we get there. 
And and it calmed me down because he spoke with such sincerity, you know, with such warmness. I've always believed that a lot of these people were very much angelic beings of some sort. And so we get to this prison and I'm being led to where my cell is. And as we go in, it's roll call time. All the prisoners are being counted. And so I'm paraded in. And all these guys see me coming in. And in a sense, it's kind of like the worst possible moment to come into the prison because everyone gets to know that there's a new guy that's come in. And so once I've come in and um, they've taken the leg irons off and they hand me a little a bucket and in the bucket is all my belongings because in Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison, you bring in a bucket and everything you own must fit in that bucket, right? Everything must fit in that bucket. I have my Bible in that in that bucket. I have some uh, uh, food items that have been given to me, some uh, non-perishable, so it's hard cookies that you get and a few other things uh, that, you know, that I could bring in. And I'm standing there holding this bucket. They've taken my clothes away. I've been strip searched. They do a, a, a dehumanizing search on your on your first day in. They look through every cavity in your body. And then they make you do it over and over and over again. And there are hundreds of people that are just watching. Um I've never I've never felt so 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 embarrassed, so sh- ashamed as I did in, in that day, walking, holding a bucket with naked with no clothes on, going from officer to officer, who, who just asked, who, who commanded me to do whatever they wanted to do as part of the, the search, and I had to comply. And I'm standing in the company and audience of about three, 400 men in my part of the, of the prison because it, it has different sections men who have gone through the same experience. These are people that have lost all sense of being dignified human beings. They know what it's like. And at the end of it, they hand me these prison clothes to put on. I put these clothes on, they're dirty, they stink. And one of the things I notice immediately is that the edges, of the of the sleeves and the collar up and down, they've been they've been cut open. I didn't understand why until later on. One of the prisoners told me that they do that because the clothes are so dirty that lights lay eggs on the inside of those. So you've got to cut them open so that at some point you can burn the eggs. So there's not a seam. Pastor, is that why? The, yeah, they'll live, exactly. They'll yeah. live in the seam That's of your t-shirt. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Exactly. They'll live in the seam if, if they left the seam in there. But as I'm putting on these clothes, I'm stunk naked standing there with my bucket and I'm putting on these clothes. These four men approach me. And at that point, I really feel like it's over. This is where I get beaten. This is where I get I get abused. This is everything I've ever heard. This is It's going to happen now. And these four guys approach me. And the man leading them, he's putting his hand out as he gets close to me to try and shake my hand. So I stand there and I don't know what to do because he's doing something I'm not expecting him to do. So he says to me, no, Pastor, it's okay. We're, um, we're friends. We know what you've done. 
and we've been telling people here about the things you've done, um, the four of us. And I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, what is he? And he says, the four of us, we realize something about this moment. To have you in here means that we have someone who has been fighting for our families out there. And we're serving, um, we're serving life sentences and there's nothing we can do to help our families. But we realize that um, you take as much time as you need, Pastor. And um, he says we realize that um, we can or we can make a contribution to helping our nation like you are by looking after you whilst you're here. And so we want to make a commitment to you in that for as long as you're going to be in here, our job is to look after you and to make sure that you are, you are stronger when you leave than when you came in. I, I had determined not to cry on that first day. Yeah. I got in there and I was like, I'm, I'm going to get there and I'm going to look as mean as I can. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't want to look weak. And no. when this guy said this, I just, I just broke down and just fried like a baby. I fried and just, and just realized that somehow God was just making sure that I got the message. And the message was, keep going, my boy. I'm with you. You know, these four guys, for the time I was in that maximum security prison, they couldn't stop the beatings or the abuse that I would take sometimes. But true to their words, every time I came back, those are the four guys that cleaned me up. Those are the four guys that encouraged me. And those four guys became my pastors. They, they, they did what they could pastors. for you, right? They couldn't oh, protect you from all of it. but they. Oh my gosh, they played their part. Let me tell you, they, they became some of the best friends I ever had. These four guys, that was their job. Every single day, they stuck to that promise. They woke up, they'd come and check up on me. Pastor, are you okay? Just sleep good. Is there anything we can do to help? Is it? And they became such good friends. They helped me through my depression, helped me through the difficult days, helped me through understanding how the prison works, helped me, I mean, just helped me to make friends. They said, the one time I remember I was sitting, I think it was probably about at the end of the first week and I was just missing my family. I was thinking about how could I leave? I left them. I was in safety and I left them. And I'm sitting crying. And this guy comes to me. And almost in a tough love situation, his name was Njabula. Njabula was serving 18 years, 18 years for armed robbery, which he admitted to, by the way. And Njabula comes to me and he, he kind of pushed me on the shoulder and he goes, hey, are you okay? And I'm like, no, man, I'm just thinking about it. And I, before I could finish the statement, he goes, hey, 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 you don't have time for this. You don't have time to sit here and cry about your problems. There are 400 men in here whose stories you need to hear. There are many in here who need to tell you what their families are going through. They're looking to you for strength. They're looking to you for encouragement. You need to make sure you speak to as many of them as you can. You are here now, but you won't be here for, forever. So 
please, it's sad. Yes, it's sad. Get up and meet them. And it was a weird situation because I was sitting there thinking, Lord, I mean, I deserve a pity party. I really, I really deserve to cry and to feel bad about myself right now. But Jabulio was not having it. Not because he, he didn't think it was important. But somehow this guy, an arm robber, had figured out that the stories and meeting the people I was going to meet in that cell, in that prison, were going to be an important aspect of representation when I left. Wow. His friend, his friend Charles, Charles was serving a life sentence. I think he might be out of prison now. I tried to track him down and wasn't able to see him. He had been in prison for 20 years, serving a life sentence for murder. Charles came to me the one and time. And did he commit the crime? Yes, he did. He did. He did, actually. He did. He was a teacher. I'll tell you a story very quickly. He was a teacher because he led the four, the, the group of four men. He's the guy that came in and greeted me. Charles was a teacher. And what happened was that him and his brother were in a prison. No, sorry, we in a bar. And somebody attacked his brother. And Charles defended his brother and threw a bottle at the guy who attacked his brother, hit him in the head, and the guy died on the spot. That's how he found himself charged with murder. That sounds like self-defense to me, not murder. Oh, yeah, well, in that, in this case in Zimbabwe, he ended up in prison for that. Hmm. And so, and so he was a good man. And Charles says to me on the one day I was standing, looking at this high wall of the maximum security prison. It has about maybe two other walls on the outside of that but right on the inside where we were it's just a wall in the courtyard where we would spend the day milling around or playing or whatever you know we would be doing and i'm looking at this high wall and i'm just it was it was just tough to think how do you even get out of here and he comes to me and he says um he says to me you know the thing about these walls that you have to learn to do, which I've learned to do over the years, is to ignore them. I said to him, how do you mean? And he says, pretend like they are not here. Like they're just part of a building, like the part of the walls of a bedroom or part of the, part of the walls of a, of a living room in your house. You don't notice the walls of your bedroom, do you? You don't notice the walls of your living room when you walk in. Like they are walls, they are walls. No, you just you you just move and and operate within them. You just you don't you don't recognize that they're there. I said, "Okay, and why would I do that?" And said, "Because because it's important for you to to have a freedom in here that that is not dictated to you by the existence of the walls and the chains." And so that when you leave, it doesn't matter whether you were in jail or whether you were out, you are always freer than those who are free. You know, I... Wow, Pastor. It, it blew me away. Yeah. But those are the kinds of, kinds of things that I learned from these guys. And how and, did you ultimately get out of this horrible place with these wonderful men? Eventually, I was released on bail. My bail application came through after about three months. And I was released from Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison. Um, the state took my passport 
so that I could not leave or travel. Additionally, they took the title deeds to my parents' home as a guarantee that I would not leave. If I did, that my parents' home would be forfeited to the state. So that meant I had to stay. Yes. So I did. And over the course of the rest of that year, the trial would not start. Every time we went to court, the state would kind of kick the can down the road and say, we're not ready, we're not ready. I was arrested another six times that year. <laughs> Did they bring you to jail each time, Pastor Yes, I, I would go back to Shikurabi Maximum Security Prison. And each guess time? who I would meet? Six times time. in, in, in one year? In one year. In one year. And and I would go back to Shikurabi. It was only once that I went to a different prison. But the rest of the time, I would go back to Shikurabi Maximum Security Prison. And it was my joy and pleasure to go back. Chris, it really was. That's I a very bizarre that. sentence, Pastor. <laughs> I know this. I know this very well that it's strange to say that. But I looked forward to seeing Jabula and Charles and the, and the guys and updating on what had happened, you know, outside and where we were in the case and, and just talking and, and ministry. The one night on my final arrest, I had been told bail had come through, but somehow the prison refused to let me go that day, so I had to spend one extra night in jail. And the guys insisted that I preach that night in the cell. And I delivered one of the best sermons I have ever preached in my life. I bet you did, Pastor. My God, did the place was alive. We sang into the night, and and this was the fun, fun thing that happened when our cell began to sing. What happened was that the next cell was picked up on the song. So they started singing. And then the next cell picked up on the song and the next. So you had this kind of, this kind of, it was, it was, it was incredible. And the prison guards came up to try and shut everything down. And people kept, they kept singing. They can't beat all of us <laughs> up, right? <laughs> oh my goodness, man. You take me back, Chris, when I talk about these things. Um, it's incredible to hear. Yeah. And so um, ultimately you get out, yes? So ultimately, whilst I was on bail, on, on that final release, they let me out on bail again. Mm -hmm. But something was happening in the country. The, Robert Mugabe, the dictator, was facing a mutiny. And it was, a, it was an incredible moment. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but at this point he's in... An older man, is he not? Yes, he was 93 years old. Yeah, so it's not like he's 50 or 60 or 40. Oh, no, or, oh, no. He's in, he was 93. And so, and, had a, and, and being an old dictator is a very dangerous thing, yes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you, you, you do whatever it takes to, to protect not just yourself, but your family. Because now you know that as an old person, you're coming to the end of your life. And once you go, the people who are likely to pay the price are your family. So as an older dictator, you, 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 you see that they try their best to, you know, hold on. They try their best to suppress even, even you know, m much more harshly. Um, and of course, trying to keep their generals and lieutenants around them very well, um, you know, you know, paid to make sure that they you know, keep, uh, you know, keep the whole thing going. 
So at this point, we've done so much protesting that even people in the military feel like something needs to change. But they were having their own kind of internal um, split or issues. And, and so we began to talk about let's mobilize people to get on the street. And let's, and let's now let's, now let's do it blatantly. And let's ask for Robert Mugami to resign. And at that very point, we realized that the military was agreeing with us. And they were like, no, we really need a change in this country. We need something different. And it was, in, it was incredible to see this happening. And so we campaigned and we, you know, with the movement we've been building over the last few years, and we, we campaigned for people to get on the street and march against Robert Mugabe for him to leave. And it, it happens. It's an amazing uh, moment. Hundreds of thousands of people get on the street in different parts of the country and just demand Robert Mugabe steps down. And uh, after about a week of this, you know, very dramatically, Robert Mugabe eventually steps down. A euphoric moment. Chris, you have to understand, this is someone who had declared he would die in power. And now he has stepped down. And and there's this wave of relief. And without the use of a military coup, you had no weapons. Well, we didn't have any weapons. Right. I mean, the, the military were kind of, you know, in the background. Oh, sure. But the citizenry know. had no a violent way of opposing him. No. All you had no, was protest. No, all you had not was at protest. All. all we had was protest, you know. Um, I mean, we look back on it now and we can see that the military was playing their own game and sure. that they were, you know, but I, I've, I've always said, because, you know, people look back and, you know, critics look back and they dissect your work and, you know, and people talk about, well, it wasn't really, it wasn't me. I'm like, no, hold on a second. Like <laughs> we were there. We, and you have we, the scars to prove it. Oh, yes. We contributed to that atmosphere. And in fact, one of the reasons we decided to be there, Chris, is that we knew that the, the military had some game they would play. But my reasoning, when if you go back into my videos, you'll hear me say, I said, we owe it to, be our, to ourselves to be present. Yes. We have to be there. Listen, freedom, the fight for freedom, the fight for or for the thing you want that's really going to set you free is not a fight that you can outsource. L let me let me let me let me say this the way I've often said it is: the fight for freedom and democracy cannot be outsourced. We have to be there. Freedom is a fight that that you don't give to someone else because whoever fights for your freedom, if they should ever get it, they own it, not you. So, and so, so it was important yes, for us to be there. Yes, for, for sure. And so I've done a bunch of reading about the status of the country today, but I, I'd be curious what would be your synthesis of how Zimbabwe uh, is sitting today. My heart sinks when I'm asked this question because of having to admit the truth, which is that as a nation, Zimbabwe is in a worse place than it was. Than than you know, it's it's in a worse place than it was when Robert Mugabe was was in power. And it's 
it's one of the things that is very hard for us to say as Zimbabweans because we did not think we would see the day when anyone would do what possibly Mugabe. There's just no way. There's just no way. And so we are back in a place where not only do we not have an economy that's functional, but we have the highest inflation rate in the world. We're in a place where people are dying of very simple diseases that were cured way back in the rest of the world. You know, we have still have cholera outbreaks and typhoid outbreaks, which are because of unclean water that people in cities are having to drink. We still have no electricity that is dependable on we. Our health delivery system has collapsed completely. Our education system is on its way out. Democratic freedoms have been constricted even further today than they were under Robert Mugabe. My last arrest, actually, Chris, was in 2019 by the new government. In January 2019, when they began to be corrupt again, we called another shutdown protest, which which absolutely succeeded January 16, 2019. I was arrested immediately and went right back for my last visit to Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison. That was the hardest arrest of my all my eight arrests. The hardest I have arrest. no basis of understanding for this. The hardest one, Chris. And not even because I was brutally beaten and tortured because I was. Not because of that, but because... Our chance and our hope had been taken advantage of. The once in a generation moment that we had had been abused by men and women who were so greedy, so brutal that they could not find it in their hearts to at least redeem themselves by doing better for a people that needed better. That's what hurt me the most. So, Pastor Ivan, I have a question for you. I know it's one you get asked. And if it's not something you want to talk about, you just tell me. But there's a lot of speculation and I think some hope that you might one day run to become the leader of your country. Um, is there anything you want to share about that? You know, Chris, let me answer that. And, and if you saying... don't, it's okay. I, I get it. It's it's fine. And, and and you know what? It's a question that has in some cases gained me a lot of friends and in some cases a lot of enemies. Because people have various interpretations about what it means to run for president. I would say much love to run for president for my country. Why? Because it is an opportunity to serve people at the highest level. That's what it is. But I want to I want to give you an insight into something that had happened when I was 16. Remember that school I told you about that I went to that had no running water, that had pit littering toilets, and that had cows and your uncle the disciplinarian to my uncle the disciplinarian and he just he he beat life into me, that man. <laughs> I, I love him. 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 <laughs> and him and I have laughed about it again for years. By the way, he's a he was a beautiful he must be man. very he's very still. proud of that uh, that, oh, that little man. boy that he, needed some discipline. Let me tell you, he's late now, but he was so he came on my wedding day. He came gave probably what is my best wedding speech that I ever heard when he spoke about me. I loved him to bits. But when I was sixteen. 
Zimbabwe ran a little competition every year on June 16. It's Day of the African Child. So it's a continental day of the African child. And on June 16, what Zimbabwe does is that it, it runs a children's parliament, a young people's parliament. And young people are selected to be parliamentarians from different constituencies. So uh, these are kind of different representatives from different parts of the country. And you come to the parliament as a representative of the people. And you, we hold a mock parliament where you speak of the troubles and the tribulations of the people in your constituency or the needs of the people in your constituency and what you would do to bring change for the people in your constituency, just as the real parliamentarians do or are supposed to do. And out of that parliament, they then they choose um, someone who becomes a speaker of the house. Uh, um, uh, they choose someone who becomes the, the vice president of the country and they choose someone who becomes the child president of the Republic of Zimbabwe. So I was chosen to be a parliament um, representative for this region where this story was. An opportunity I would never have gotten. And at 16 years old, I represented this constituency and spoke as a parliament. I was so proud of myself and spoke as a parliamentarian and spoke about the needs and the things they, that they needed. At the end of it, when they were choosing the different office holders, I was, I was completely not expecting it. But for the year 1993 to 1994, I was the child president for the Republic of Zimbabwe. I'll, I'll never forget that for as long as I live because it, it was... And for a long time, I, I, I would hide it. Even on this journey, I'd hidden that part of my story. I didn't want people drawing conclusions out of it. So for a long time, that was unknown and still remains unknown. I'm glad to share it now because you asked the question. And I spent the year as, a, as, a, as, the, as, the, as the child president of the Republic, visiting constituencies, visiting people and making these speeches. And they were speaking prepared for me half the time because it was all You must have been unbelievable. I can only imagine you with was, your commitment and your pastor <laughs> skills and your oratory skills. You, oh, you must have been a legendary 16-year-old president. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't elect you the actual president. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But, I mean, I say that because I saw the scope. Um, in my little eyes, I, I saw the scope of what it take out. Of course, I didn't see all of it, but I just saw the scope of what it would take to lead a nation and, and what you would need. And so I'd always held that responsibility should one ever get it with the highest, the highest of reverence because it's about serving people. And so having said that, Leading a nation or our nation is a job that requires you to be chiefly a servant of the people. And most importantly, somebody who is given to not just changing the outward appearance of, of, of things, but changing the inward appearance, helping to change the hearts of people. And so... 
if that opportunity were ever given to me, it is one that I would, I would, I would do with all of my heart, and and do it knowing fully well that it is not because I am something special, but it is because there is a cause that needs to be represented. And in everything that we do, if we live life by representing a cause, if we live life by by pursuing a cause, our courage shows up. People ask me all the time, where, where, where did you get the courage to do this? And then I said, I'll tell you what I did is that I, I represented a cause. And when you represent a cause, your courage shows up. You don't have to summon it. It shows up. It shows up. And so it would be, it would be the greatest honor of my life to do that. And is it possible? I have conditions such that it even could be possible? Hey, I think let me start by saying that I don't think I have yet felt that that is a part of my call. I think let me let me say that that I I don't haven't as yet felt that is a part of my call. Um, however, I think that it is very possible to join hands with some amazing young people in Zimbabwe right now who are running for political office who are standing in political spaces and challenging the status quo, it'll be a great opportunity to hold hands and join with them and make it happen, even if we're putting someone else. And there's a young man running in Zimbabwe right now. His name is Nelson Chamisa. He's a dear brother. I love him to bits and pieces. He has my support. And and I think for me, that's where the that's where the prize sure. is. Sure. Can we stand together yes. and bring a change for our generation? Can we be in a place, Chris, where when our children ask us about what we did, they or anyone else can never say that we did nothing. I'm reminded, Pastor, uh, a while back we had this gentleman on the podcast named Xander Rose, and he runs a, uh, a nonprofit group called the Long Now Foundation, and their sole uh, purpose is to try to encourage long-term thinking. And he asked me a question that stopped me in my tracks. Uh-huh. And the question is, are we being good ancestors? Because many of us, certainly anybody living in the United States of America, is experiencing the radical benefits of many a legendary ancestor. I really love that question. Are we being good ancestors? Yeah. And you, sir, are very much being a very, a very great legendary ancestor. Now, if you have a few more minutes, you've spent a lot of time in the United States, yes, Pastor? Uh-huh. And you're up to date with most of the current things that are going on in the U.S., the political situation and the economic situation. Yeah. And so At some forth. level, yeah. Yeah. And um, I wonder if you have any particular insight given your experience, given your lens, if you have any particular insight on the political social situation today in the United States? I think that, um, first of all, it, it, is a, it is a complex one. 
But having said that, a few things stand out. And as a precursor, let me say that no democracy is perfect. That each and every one has flaws, has its own issues, its own process of becoming. Um, this democracy in the United States is different today than it was 250 years ago when it was formed. And it's gone through various iterations and various moldings to become what it is today. And it hasn't stopped. It, it, my belief is that it is still going through that process. So it is not perfect and has many things in it that still need attention and that still needs to be fixed. However, when I compare it to where I come from, or when I compare it to what I see around the world, it is a model that many of us have looked to and a model that we would hope to build in some parts, in parts of our, our world. And I say this so that I can, I, I can let people here know that whilst some think that the whole thing is completely bad and must be thrown out, there is value in it. There is some value in it. It's not perfect, but I will tell you that it's better than what is happening elsewhere. And for that reason, you've got to protect it. Find a way to protect this democracy. There are those who think it's perfect and it has no flaws. They too are wrong. Because it, it must be looked at. It must be continuously improved. We must open our minds up about how do we, how can we be better? But then let me also, also say this, Chris, that beyond what your party's ideological position is and your dedication to your party. What both these parties and the other players have brought forth is a democracy that has worked. And my plea and my call whenever I speak with American audiences is find it in your hearts to sacrifice the position of your party for that which you have together. Together you have a democracy. Together you have freedoms. And when your party, whether you are on the right or whether you are on the left, when it begins to encourage you to destroy what we have together, it is your job within your party to turn to your friends and say, my friends, we are wrong on this issue. The fight breaks out when people from the, from the other party, from the opposing party, try to hold people from the other party accountable. It's fine. They must do it. Yes. But the point I'm trying to make is that the most effective accountability tool that you have is the one you have within. It is when you look at each other and say, on this matter of our own democracy, we're wrong and we must change that. My point is this, is Chris. I see a situation, and I'm, I'm closing my eyes so I can say this clearly. I see a situation where there is a willingness 
to sacrifice what we have together so that I can get what we have in our party. And that, that, is, that, is, that is only going to lead you into one way, which means you're going to lose everything. You will lose both what you have in your party and you will also lose what we have together. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Pastor. I couldn't agree more. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on? Because <laughs> I think we've dug under every rock and, and just <laughs> this conversation. You're such a the thing is this is that you're such a such a great discussant. You I love the way you invite people in. I love the way you probe and the way you open up. It speaks of volumes of your own heart. There's a lot of space in your heart, my friend. Thank you, brother. And, Thank you. And that's a that's a beautiful quantity to have. It means a lot to me coming from you. It means uh, a lot. There is. There is. And if people want to help you, how can they help you? I think there are a few ways that I can um, I can think of. We um, run different campaigns. Part of the job that I now do here in the United States, um, apart from advocating for Zimbabwe in spaces that matter, um, is advocating for freedom and democracy globally. You know, I, I lead uh, a part of um, um, uh, a part of an organization called Renew Democracy Initiative, and I lead what's called the Front Lines of Freedom. And the Front Lines of Freedom is a collective of uh, democracy dissidents like myself from around the world, people who've done what I've done, people that have spent time in prison, people that have been brutalized, and uh, people whose husbands or whose wives are in prison as we speak, and they're fighting for their freedom. Um, you know, And our job is we speak to different audiences in the free world, telling them why it's important to fight for their democracy, telling them why it's important to defend their democracy, telling them the importance of this democracy to democracies of the world. And... Number one, if you get a chance and uh, go on to any of the podcast sites and look for Frontlines of Freedom, uh, you'll see Frontlines of Freedom uh, with Ivan Mawaride. Uh, listen to some of the stories that are on that podcast uh, because we, we try and build in lessons of what people can do with their own lives. But they're fascinating, amazing stories. If you think my story is amazing, that I listen to the ones on this podcast. I love these people. They're amazing, amazing group of people. I think the other side is if you can help us to be present in different spaces where you have access, I'd love to take you up on those offers uh, to sit around small tables and talk, to sit around panels and you know conferences, whatever it is where we can share the story of what it's like to fight for freedom in our uh, regions and then also just share what it looks like for us when we are looking into uh, this great nation and, 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 and tell you what we see um, and hopefully that gets you to think either a little differently or to get you to, th to think even clearer on the things that you are already clear, uh, clear about. So those are some ways that uh, that you can do. But um, um, you know, I do advocacy for Zimbabwe. 
a lot. And every now and again, we're running campaigns to help newborn babies in Zimbabwe and mothers who are having to carry, you know, a bucket of water to the hospital to go and give birth. And sometimes we're trying to help them with different um, packages, uh, you know, mothers' kits, new mothers' kits when they give birth, not enough for anyone who would love to partner with us in some of those things to get a hold of us. Sometimes to help political prisoners, uh, there's just there's so much that you can uh, that you can do to help uh, at this point. Excellent, and we'll make sure that um, all of those organizations um, that you recommend for those who want to help will be in the show notes for uh, for this episode. Absolutely, absolutely, Chris. Thank you for that opportunity, Pastor Ivan. Thank you so much for this time. It's been an honor, my friend. And please know, God bless you. God bless you. Thank sir. you, Chris. You're an angel. You too, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. That was the legendary Pastor Ivan Moare. You can find him at ivanmoare.org. That's E V A N M A W A R I R E.org. And you can find him on Twitter at Pastor Ivan Live and Ivan Moare on LinkedIn. We'd like to thank you. And again, we'd like to thank the incredible Pastor Yvonne Moare. Remember the legendary people of the Naka Foundation at nakafoundation.org. That's N-H-A-K-A foundation.org. Our team was so moved by Pastor Yvonne that we've made a donation. And if you can, you should too. Thank you for investing part of your life with us. The thought we'll leave you with from Pastor Yvonne is, we owe ourselves nothing but the courage to change things. Until we're together again, stay safe, stay legendary, and follow your different. <laughs>